we are going to take a little break from the CIA in this special edition of Fearmonger Fridays and explore some historical context for the current headlines. After all, no current event is ever that far from the history of the Cold War. And we won't even be going that far from our Fort Detrick stories. So, put on your surgical masks. This is the Cold War Vault. Part 1. The Cold War Never Ended in China It isn't a fossil of those years, like Cuba or even North Korea. It is a living, breathing, authoritarian juggernaut that, at its heart and in its bones, is a creature of Cold War geopolitical ideology. Despite the new economy and the rise of a new bourgeoisie, Mao Zedong still sits like a totalitarian lump in its throat. The Cold War never really ended in China. So let's talk about what that means for this week in history for transparency, and for the general pulmonary health of the world. For the last couple of weeks, Tom Cotton, a U.S. senator from Arkansas, has been saying, tweeting, and otherwise spouting his hypothesis that the coronavirus disease 2019, or COVID-19, is a virus that's escaped from a Chinese weapons lab. That's probably what you've heard that Tom Cotton said, except that isn't at all what he's said. Despite condemnation in the news for being a fringe conspiracy theorist, that just wasn't the intention of his assertions. I'm certainly not one to defend Tom Cotton, or any politician. Instead, I deal in very cold, very indifferent facts, which sometimes vindicate and sometimes incriminate those who get in the way. What Tom Cotton has actually claimed is that the virus could have originated from one of four possible places. An accidental release of diagnostic research, an accidental release of a bioweapon, a deliberate release of one or the other, and what he still says is the most likely, a naturally occurring virus just like everyone says, but certainly not from the Wuhan wet market. Even in this concession, he continues to be batted about the ears for not towing the official line. And that's a shame. Because there is one thing Tom Cotton has said that anyone with any degree of historical context and political awareness would have to agree with. That is, that every assumption based on any official statement from the Chinese government, the Communist Party of China, must be questioned. Because, as Tom Cotton has said, China was lying from the beginning, and they're still lying today. Of course, 
Objective truth has no value in an ideologically radical regime, be it authoritarian or totalitarian, because these are bound to the necessity of appearance and perception over substance and reality. That was the Soviet Union decades ago, and it is China today. Now, I'm not here to explain the ins and outs of the current flavors of Chinese duplicity, whether it's fudging the coronavirus numbers by an order of magnitude or their smoke-and-mirrors economy. Nor am I here to explain Tom Cotton-based theories on leaks and bio-warfare. What I can do, and will as a historian of the Cold War and Cold War science, is to offer you a couple of stories that you might find relevant to the headlines. Stories that might help to put the narrative into perspective. Because as dismissive as the wider world of media has been of the Tom Cottons in this debate, the truth is, their suspicions have all played out before. Part 2. Accidents at the Anthrax Hotel Nineteen sixty nine, November twenty fifth. Richard Nixon gave a speech at Fort Detrick, appropriately enough, that ended the United States offensive biological weapons program. He said, The United States shall renounce the use of lethal biological agents and weapons and all other methods of biological warfare. The United States will confine its biological research to defensive measures, such as immunization and safety measures. It was really quite a step. Unprecedented, some might say. And Nixon did say. The motivations were multiple. Primarily, the political desire to relieve some pressure over the mounting Vietnam protests and the continued use of chemical agents in Vietnam like Agent Orange, Agent White, and Agent Blue. All herbicides that were not added to Nixon's list of chemical weapons to destroy, incidentally. Practically speaking, the move was made much easier by the fact that all of the Joint Chiefs of Staff were supportive and even enthusiastic about ending the bioweapons program. They found the weapons to be militarily useless. Once released, they were uncontrollable and tactically dangerous a wild card that no one wanted on the battlefield. And what was the sense in it when there were nuclear weapons anyway? Even with their inherent problems like fallout, they were surgical compared to the uncontrolled release of an aerosol of smallpox, for example. And there was the nagging worry that the weapons themselves, in development or in storage, posed a threat far more difficult to contain than the safety of the nuclear stockpile. There had been accidents. In 1951, a microbiologist at Fort Detrick named William Boyles was accidentally exposed to anthrax spores. He died within days. In 1958, Joel Willard, an electrician in the anthrax production facility at Fort Detrick, known on the base as the Anthrax Hotel, was working in one of the hot zones where animal subjects were dosed. Somehow, 
and there's no good record of how he also inhaled the airborne spores. He died even faster. A year later, a tech named Bernard Victor Lefty Cray, whose job it was to scrape anthrax paste off the walls of a centrifuge, realized he had a hole in the glove of his suit. His fingers swelled to many times the normal size with a cutaneous anthrax infection. Eventually, he was perfectly fine. And he became a famous fly fisherman, incidentally. An interesting bioweapons side note. Anthrax gains strength and resilience as it grows in a human host. So whenever an accident like this occurred, the bioweaponeers at Fort Detrick collected samples. It was a kind of happy accident with a human cost. In the case of Lefty Cray, the lab tech, the new, highly virulent strain grown from his sample was dubbed BVK-1, or Bernard Victor Cray. When he was told this fact by a journalist years after his retirement, he was very amused and declared, I'll have to tell my wife. In the Soviet Union, increased virulence with a human cost was pursued even more aggressively. In 1988, a scientist named Nikolai Ustinov pricked himself while injecting a guinea pig and infected himself with Marburg virus. Marburg is a hemorrhagic fever that has the unfortunate effect of liquefying the organs. It can also destroy the brain, rendering victims insane before death. It causes the body to bleed from every orifice and then, eventually, to bleed from every pore. After Ustinov's excruciating death three weeks after the accident, orders were issued to replace the old weaponized strain with the new strain grown inside of his body. It was called Variant U. By the end of 1989, Marburg Variant U had been successfully weaponized and permission was given to begin testing. The United States signed the Biological Weapons Convention in 1972, and it was ratified in 1975. The convention prohibits signatories from developing, producing, or stockpiling bioweapons agents, or the means to deliver them as weapons. The Soviet Union also signed the convention in 1972, and it went into effect in 1975. But unlike its Cold War rival, the Soviet Union didn't even make a plausible show of ending its bioweapons program. But we'll get to that in a minute. For now, let me tell you another story. Part 3. Smallpox Once, the Aral Sea was the fourth largest lake in the world. Today, it is usually the Aralkum Desert, dusty, mildly toxic salt flats shared by Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. In July 1971, when it was still an inland sea, a Soviet research vessel called the Lev Berg plied its waters on a mission to sample sea life. 
The wind was blowing to the southwest, as it almost always did before the water went away. The Lev Berg moved into a position about ten miles from the southern tip of one of the many Aral Islands, and a young lab tech took fish samples from the deck, as she did twice a day. That day seemed to be the same as any other. In 1954, biological weapons experimentation had resumed on an island in the Aral Sea called Vazrosdenye, or Rebirth. The first scientific expedition to establish a testing facility on the island had actually landed in 1936, but the heads of the project were caught up in Stalin's purges, and development on the island was delayed until after World War II. And so, in 1954, development of bioweapons at the facility, called Aralsk-7, went into full swing. A town named Kantubek was built to house the scientists and their families, along with extensive facilities for weapons research and military use. It was, like the Soviet nuclear weapons infrastructure, a self-contained community that fostered scientific work for a military purpose. During its life, the labs at Oralsk 7 tested anthrax, tularemia, brucellosis, plague, typhus, Q fever, smallpox, botulinum toxin, and Venezuelan equine encephalitis. Animal pens were easily spotted by U.S. reconnaissance, giving away the fact that the settlement was a biowarfare lab. The biological agents were, in fact, tested on horses, monkeys, sheep, and donkeys, and on laboratory animals. But enhanced pathogens were also developed on the island, germs suitable for military applications. Among these was a very potent variety of smallpox. The scientists tested these in open-air experiments on the southern end of the island. And it was the southern tip of Vazrasdenye where the Levberg had anchored to take samples on that July day in 1971. Soon after the ship was back underway, the technician began to get sick. When you dig deeply enough into the documents and recollections, it seems a second woman on the ship also came down with the same mysterious symptoms. They were bedridden until the ship came into port at the city of Aral on the 11th of August. Patient Zero went home to rest. She recovered by the 15th, but her younger brother fell ill with the same symptoms, a rash and a fever. Eventually, he recovered too, and it's important to note that both of them had been vaccinated against smallpox. Eight more cases emerged in the weeks that followed. Five adults and three children. Doctors ran the tests to prove their suspicions. It was indeed smallpox. Of those who had come down with it, a 23-year-old male and the two youngest children, four and nine months, were unvaccinated. Those who had been vaccinated recovered without the pox manifesting itself in its usual painful and deadly form. The three unvaccinated patients developed hemorrhagic smallpox, and after severe bleeding throughout the body, all three of them died. The cause of the outbreak was immediately suspected as a result of testing on the island. 
The Soviet government saw the potential for a massive epidemic and exercised its overwhelming authority to isolate and crush the escaped virus. The port city of Aral was cordoned. Vehicular traffic was blocked and the train was forbidden to stop. The city's 50,000 residents were isolated and vaccinated in a massive campaign that was completed in less than two weeks. A quarantine camp was established at the edge of the city, and those not placed into that facility were quarantined at home. To be on the safe side, whole houses were burned, along with about 20 tons of potentially infected household items and personal possessions. Smallpox hadn't yet been eradicated in 1971, the second-to-last naturally occurring case was found in Bangladesh in 1975, and the last was in Somalia in 1977. The last person in the world to die of smallpox was a photographer named Janet Parker in 1978, who was infected through a laboratory sample at Birmingham University Medical School in the UK. But in 1971, smallpox did still exist in the wild, it was quickly recognized, and the response mechanisms were in place, including massive amounts of vaccine. The outbreak in RL was contained. One has to wonder how far and wide the outbreak might have spread if Moscow had denied its severity, or even its existence, either to save face or to shift the blame. Aralsk 7 continued its work, and while there were no other accidental epidemics in humans, the products of the island lab continued to leave their mark on the environment. Or, at least the lab continued to leave its mark on the psychology of the region's population. In 1976, fishermen started hauling in masses of dead fish in their nets. In 1986, whole flocks of sheep lost their wool after bubonic plague was found in the region. In 1988, 500,000 saiga antelope collapsed and died within hours of each other. In the years since, plausible natural explanations for these die-offs have emerged. The freshwater fish died from increased salt in the evaporating water. The plague was naturally occurring. And in 2015, scientists determined, after a second antelope die-off, that it had been caused by a bacteria exacerbated by warm, humid weather. But it doesn't matter that the bioweapons lab on Vazrazdenye wasn't the cause of the various natural calamities. Because people continued to believe that there was a possibility that it was. In 1988, for example, the entire human population of the region was evacuated by authorities as the antelope started to die. Because there was an endemic mistrust of anything coming from the government's collective mouth. In the public's mind, there was always a possibility that something, at some secret facility somewhere, had escaped. Perpetual suspicion is the cost of perpetual dishonesty. Part 4. The Biological Chernobyl In 
in the southern part of the city of Sverdlovsk, the seat of the industrial region of Sverdlovsk Oblast, the city that would regain its historical name, Ekaterinburg, after the fall of the Soviet Union, sat a heavily guarded military installation called Compound 19. None of the locals knew what went on beyond the gates and barbed wire, but they had their suspicions. Across the road, the city's ceramics factory worked in three shifts. Alexandra Chisova worked the evening shift on Friday, March 30, 1979. She was a 50-year-old woman, usually healthy, but when she got home that night after her shift, she was feeling extremely sick. A high temperature, severe cramps, and difficulty breathing. Two days later, Alexandra Chisova was dead. What quickly became apparent is that something very troubling was happening in Sverdlovsk. In the days that followed, the entire night shift of the ceramics factory became ill with the same pneumonia-like symptoms. Within the week, with very few exceptions, all of the workers on the shift had died. But the illness and death went farther afield. Eventually, at least 68 people died, by the official government count, with some first-hand accounts putting the number over 100. Hundreds of farm animals died as well, for weeks after the initial cases. The bodies of the human victims were buried together, isolated in a distant corner of the city's cemetery, in coffins lined with lime. The official government explanation was that it was an anthrax outbreak that had come from black market meat, though locals never really bought the official line. One employee of the ceramics plant later told journalists, We never believed it. Ordinary people catch on fast. We knew lots of people who had eaten the meat did not get anthrax. After a few days, we guessed it must have come from compound 19. Still, the KGB did a spectacular job of suppressing the details of the accident while still acknowledging that the source of the illness had in fact been anthrax. The illness and death continued for six weeks, through April and into May. The story smoldered for a while, and then died. Nearly. For U.S. intelligence analysts, it all began in October 1979 with an anecdotal report very brief, that appeared in a Russian-language newspaper in Frankfurt, West Germany. It had no specific detail, but reported some kind of an accident at a biological weapons lab. The same newspaper, in early 1980, reported that there had been an explosion in April 1979, near Sverdlovsk. Without supporting evidence, and that isn't surprising seeing as these reports were hearsay coming through the Soviet émigré community, the paper claimed that the entire region had been put under Soviet military control, that extensive decontamination efforts were underway, and that thousands were dead from an outbreak of anthrax. Now the Western press took an interest. Still without any corroboration through official channels, none could have been expected from the Soviet Union in those days, the stories kept coming. 
U.S. intelligence sensed a grain of truth in all of it and reviewed satellite reconnaissance and signals intercepts from the spring of 1979. Sure enough, the intelligence revealed signs of a serious accident. Roadblocks and decontamination trucks had sprouted around the suspected bioweapons lab. Signals intelligence showed that the Soviet defense minister, Ustinov, had made an unscheduled trip to Sverdlovsk as well. Cold War tensions in 1979 were growing, with deepening divisions in U.S.-Soviet relations. The U.S. had been distracted by the Vietnam War for the first half of the 1970s, and out of necessity had settled into a kind of uneasy Cold War truce. But after the end of the Vietnam War, the Soviet Union again became the primary concern of foreign policy and the military posture, particularly in 1978 and 1979, as it became increasingly likely that the Soviets were going to become entangled in the upheavals in the Middle East, as they would with the invasion of Afghanistan on Christmas 1979. This was the state of affairs when the U.S. began to research the possibility of accusing the Soviet Union of violating the 1972 Biological Warfare Convention. The possible, and in fact likely, leak of anthrax in Sverdlovsk was evidence of a major violation. But there were also accusations that the Soviets had supplied a kind of biological toxin to forces in Southeast Asia. This alleged mycotoxin came to be called Yellow Rain. Whether it was a biological weapon, or as the Soviets claimed at the time, naturally occurring honeybee feces, the debate still goes on. But whether it was real or imagined didn't matter. It was a part of the narrative in early 1980, as the U.S. began to form its case and level accusations. The Soviet Union was predictably furious. There was anthrax in Sverdlovsk. They agreed to that. They had to. The story had gone beyond its borders and out of its control. But they said the anthrax wasn't a weapon. It had spread through tainted meat. It was, Soviet officials insisted, an unfortunate but natural foodborne accident. TASS the official news agency of the Soviet Union, ran a story titled A Germ of Lying on the 24th of March, 1980, that accused the United States of artificially heating up the arms race with its accusations of bioweapons and increasing tensions between the superpowers for its own militaristic ends. Moreover, the article reasserted that the anthrax outbreak was natural and spread through contaminated meat. For good measure, it went on to question whether the 1972 Bioweapons Convention was even a valid treaty. None of this passed muster with U.S. intelligence. But the Soviets stuck with their claims. Here, the Soviet news machine got an unexpected series of allies. The CIA asked Dr. Matthew Messelson, a Harvard geneticist, molecular biologist, and a vocal opponent of biological warfare, to look at the evidence and offer his own assessment. Messelson was skeptical that the anthrax epidemic had come from a lab accident. Unsurprisingly, 
This skepticism arose after he traveled to Moscow to meet with Ministry of Health officials and found their explanation plausible, even probable, and apparently their demeanor amicable. In the diplomatic cable that summarized the meeting, it was noted that Meselson didn't press the Soviets with tough questions, and so the suspicions held by U.S. intelligence remained unresolved. Matthew Meselson served as a Soviet dupe in 1980, though he wasn't alone. Other scientists voiced doubts, not necessarily about the disease vector, but about the purpose of the laboratory that the anthrax might have escaped from. Perhaps, the hypothesis went, the lab was a defensive research facility, which was indeed allowed under the 1972 Bioweapons Convention. If the anthrax had escaped from the lab, maybe it was an innocent accident in the service of good defensive biological science. And the anthrax wasn't a weapon at all. From a reconnaissance satellite's point of view, these facilities would have looked almost identical. Of course, this was also Matthew Messelson's motivation for softballing the questions and generally giving the Soviets the benefit of the doubt. Though he and a larger body of scientists were opposed to bioweapons research and development, the greater danger was saddling the Soviets with blame for a violation of the 1972 convention that could damage relations and escalate the arms race. Facts that might have helped to authoritatively answer the essential questions were completely hidden in the murk of Soviet secrecy. How much anthrax had been released, and how many people had actually died. Even the specifics of the anthrax infection were missing from the data pool. Soviet secrecy, official denials, and adherence to the tainted meat story made it impossible to get answers to these essential questions. U.S. requests to send investigators to Svedlovsk were rejected, though with a long-standing, plausible reason. Svedlovsk was a closed military area. Even without the epidemic, foreigners wouldn't have been allowed near the facility. For the next several years, Soviet scientists traveled from conference to conference, evangelizing the party line. Meetings in Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and at Harvard in 1988, all organized by Matthew Meselson, offered a venue for the Soviets to continue to promote the tainted meat story. Meselson himself towed the line, declaring that the Soviet story was completely plausible and consistent with what was known about anthrax at the time. In 1989, he even offered testimony at a Senate hearing that the evidence all supported the official Soviet explanation. The presidential administrations of Ronald Reagan and then George H.W. Bush continued to assert that the Soviet Union was in violation of the Bioweapons Convention, and the Sverdlovsk accident was proof, no matter what the chorus of academics under Meselson kept saying. Then, in 1992, U.S. intelligence finally caught a break. A source that could give them first-hand information to support the claims they had been making about the anthrax leak for more than a decade, and about the Soviet violation of the Bioweapons Convention since its inception. Kanatzan Alibikov was a Kazakh-born Soviet scientist, a physician, a microbiologist, 
and a specialist in biological warfare. He was, at the height of his career, the first deputy director of Biopreparat, the civilian-run biological weapons laboratory network in the Soviet Union. What Alibikov would later describe as, quote, the darkest conspiracy of the Cold War, a network so secret that its members could not be told what colleagues in other parts of the organization were doing or where. In the early 1990s, Alibikov was put in charge of preparing for U.S. inspections of Soviet biological facilities. The Bioweapons Convention didn't require inspections and didn't have any mechanism for verification, but it was agreed that it would be a show of good faith. This was the era of Gorbachev and Glasnost, after all. But it still surprised the Soviets when the U.S. agreed to the exchange. A significant effort had to be made to misdirect the U.S. inspectors, seeing as the Soviet bioweapons program was actually still in full operation. The effort was apparently successful. In late 1991, a group of Soviet scientists, including Alibikov, toured Fort Detrick and other former bioweapons research labs in the U.S. It was during this trip that Alibikov came face to face with the reality of the situation. It was true what the Americans had been saying. There were no active biological weapons programs in the United States. He had suspected it. Soviet intelligence, as good as it was, had failed to come up with any evidence for it since Nixon's declaration in 1969. But seeing the facilities with his own eyes, he was convinced. And suddenly, their own efforts and his professional path as a bioweapons engineer seemed unnecessary, asymmetrical, and without any kind of ethical foothold. Kanatsan Alibikov and the group of Soviet scientists had departed on their American tour from the Soviet Union and returned to the Russian Republic. The final collapse happened as Mikhail Gorbachev resigned on December 25, 1991, just as the group was returning from the airport. Alibikov recalled his thoughts at the time in his 1999 book, Biohazard. He wrote, The new government of Russia seized the imagination of the world. It wasn't, however, my government. I was an officer of a colonial empire that no longer existed, a stranger in a country that was not my own. I was entitled to become a citizen of Russia, but in truth, I was now a foreigner. Two weeks later, Alibikov resigned his commission and left the army. His general disenchantment with his weapons program work grew, and though there was a political revolution afoot in the former Soviet Union, he was increasingly frustrated by the fact that the leadership structure in the military and in Biopreparat was unchanged, despite the report that the U.S. was not, in fact, developing biological weapons. He resigned his position with Biopreparat, and in October 1992, he left the former Soviet Union for the United States. He brought with him everything he knew about the Soviet and now Russian biological weapons program, including what had really happened during the epidemic at Sverdlovsk in 1979. Kanatsan Alibikov, who changed his name after his defection to Ken Alibak, 
was a trove of secret information. But as disenchanted as he had been with the state of Biopreparat, and as angry as he had been about the continuation of the program after those in charge ignored his report on the lack of an American program, there was someone else who was even more, frankly, furious about what had happened in Sverdlovsk. And that was Boris Yeltsin. Because what had happened in Sverdlovsk had happened on his watch. After the resignation of Gorbachev, the longtime Soviet party official, Boris Nikolaevich Yeltsin, became the first president of Russia. But in 1979, when people in Sverdlovsk began to drop dead from anthrax, he had been the Communist Party chief of the region of Sverdlovsk Oblast. That was also where he had grown up and gone to school, and so his personal links to the region were strong. Despite Yeltsin's clout as a regional party boss, the tentacles of the Ministry of Defense took precedence. As he attempted to coordinate a response to the anthrax outbreak, the military officials at Compound 19 and the KGB fought back with a draconian stranglehold on information. At some particular breaking point, Boris Yeltsin became so furious with the lack of cooperation he was receiving in his efforts to respond to the outbreak that he appeared at the gates to Compound 19, demanding to be let in. I imagine the scene was fueled by both righteous indignation and vodka. In any case, he was rebuffed by the Minister of Defense, Dmitry Ustinov, whose unscheduled appearance at the secure facility was itself fuel for U.S. suspicions that something disastrous had happened. Despite his frustration, Yeltsin was a loyal party apparatchik, and there can be no doubt that in the years that followed, he did his part to conceal what had really happened at Sverdlovsk. Years later, at his first summit with U.S. President George H.W. Bush in February 1992, Yeltsin told Bush that he agreed with the accusations the U.S. had been leveling at the Soviet Union since the 1970s, that they had been in violation of the Bioweapons Convention. Citing his own experience and suspicions at the time, he agreed that what had happened at Sverdlovsk was certainly the result of an anthrax leak from a bioweapons lab, and he promised to clean up the problem. In the months that followed, Yeltsin was increasingly vocal about the bioweapons program. On April 4, 1992, he acknowledged that the Sverdlovsk anthrax outbreak was the fault of the laboratory there. He issued a decree that promised pensions to the families of the victims. On the 11th, another decree promised adherence to the 1972 convention. It was two months later that the government, in the interest of at least the illusion of transparency, allowed a group of scientists under Matthew Messelson to travel to Sverdlovsk and conduct an investigation. After more than a decade as a Soviet apologist, Messelson finally came around to the truth in 1992. A small team of investigators were allowed into Sverdlovsk, now Ekaterinburg, and given the names of 66 fatalities from the 1979 anthrax outbreak. The investigators went door to door and interviewed family members and survivors of the event. 
They plotted the location of each of the deaths on a map, where they would have been on the night of the alleged accident. They all fell in a narrow ribbon that stretched 30 miles. When the plots were cross-referenced with the weather data for that night in 1979, it was easy to trace the source of the wafting plume. It was, without any doubt, from Compound 19. Findings of the investigative team were published in the journal Science in 1994. Though the paper made no guesses as to how the accident had actually happened. Now, that mystery has also been solved, thanks to Ken Alibek's disclosures. For as much misery and death as the accident caused, it all stemmed from a careless mistake. I hope you will have all deduced by now that Compound 19 was a biopreparat facility specializing in the production of weapons-grade anthrax. It was being produced with the intention of replacing some of the nuclear warheads on the R-36 ICBMs with anthrax. That was the plan, anyway. On a Friday afternoon in late March 1979, a lab technician at Compound 19 inspected one of the large filter elements in the anthrax drying facility. These filters were clamped over exhaust pipes that vented to the outside. The workspaces were always filled with airborne anthrax spores, but the technicians were regularly vaccinated, rendering them effectively immune to the admittedly stressful and infectious working environment. The filter, he found, was clogged. This was a common enough occurrence. The drying machines were shut down for inspection after every shift, and during the downtime, the technician removed the filter and left a note for the next shift. It said, filter clogged, so I've removed it. Replacement necessary. Nikolai Chernisov, a lieutenant colonel and supervisor of the afternoon shift, neglected to record the note in the logbook, as the regulations required. He was in a hurry to get home. Friday is Friday, after all, no matter what side of the Cold War you might have found yourself on. When the night shift came on, the shift manager looked at the logbook and didn't find anything unusual. He gave the order to spin up the drying machines. A fine dust of weapons-grade anthrax drifted out into the night. The leak sickened and killed people up to 30 miles away. Had the wind been to the north, towards the densely populated city center of Sverdlovsk, deaths could have been in the hundreds of thousands. So, you might ask, how much weaponized anthrax does it take to kill hundreds of thousands of people? The scientific paper from Messelson et al. actually analyzed this. The quantity of anthrax spores that was released during the time the filter was missing from the exhaust duct was less than a gram, about a quarter of a teaspoon of dust. In the Sverdlovsk anthrax leak, there are strong thematic links to the much more well-known Chernobyl disaster of 1986. Secrecy, cover stories, misdirection, and an official policy of living in denial. But in Sverdlovsk, as well as in Chernobyl, a timely admission of objective reality could have saved lives. But in closed societies, 
with everything on the line for those in charge who make mistakes, truth is not an option. If you're inclined to distrust the Chinese government, the story of the Sverdlovsk anthrax outbreak has some strong parallels, right down to laying the blame on meat from the market. But a major difference is that the United States and the Soviet Union were at geopolitical odds, and the U.S. had a significant interest in exposing Soviet duplicity. U.S. intelligence worked for years to pry the truth about Sverdlovsk from the Soviet shadows. That simply isn't the case in the strange, mangled web of interconnectivity that geopolitics and global economics has become in the 21st century. Not only can you, and should you, distrust anything declared by the Communist Party of China, you could hardly go astray by having a healthy dose of skepticism about any official line from anyone about anything. Because now, more often than not, in a crisis or disaster, every party has something to lose, and everybody has an interest in not just controlling the message, that's just politics as it's been played from the dawn of time, but in controlling what you perceive to be objective reality. Just like in the Soviet Union then, or communist China today, facts are just feelings. Truth is fluid. I know, it all sounds like Tom Cotton. Like conspiratorial madness, right? But let me ask you this. On one hand, the World Health Organization asserts, in a soothing tone, that this whole bout of global pneumonia came naturally from the interface of humans and bats, or pangolins, in a Wuhan wet market. On the other hand, Tom Cotton and the tinfoil hats believe that the virus escaped from a government bioweapons lab 20 miles from that market, which, as we've seen, can be as easy as forgetting a filter on a Friday afternoon. It is a circumstance that the history of the Cold War reminds us is not totally unreasonable and is far from the science fiction disaster scenario that the last 30 years of post-Soviet post-apocalypse has provided. It happened. In real life. It happens. As long as there are facilities that trade in the nuclear, biological, and chemical it will happen again. So you have the WHO on one hand, and the tinfoil hats on the other. Here's my question. No matter what you believe, would one look any different from the other? I don't think it would. Would one scenario over another result in the government of China suddenly changing their seven-decade course of lies and deception and total disregard for anything resembling the value of individual life? No. One lesson that is perhaps the easiest to learn from a study of the Cold War is to maintain, always, a healthy skepticism of the first draft of any narrative. The years eventually make fools out of blind believers. Sometimes, not even years. Just weeks. Just days. Part 5. Postscript. 
Even as Tom Cotton was being harangued for his fringe theories, namely that the Chinese government's assertion that the virus came through the wet market in Wuhan was patently untrue, a paper had already been published in The Lancet, one of the oldest, most prestigious, and most trusted medical journals in the world. The paper was authored by Chaolin Huang of the Jin Tan Hospital in Wuhan and 27 others from institutions around China. It asserts that, quote, no epidemiological link was found between the first patient and later cases. The data shows that 13 of 41 early cases had no link to the marketplace. Daniel Lucy is an infectious disease specialist at Georgetown University. He commented on the research, saying that the data show that the earliest cases were communicated between people silently in Wuhan. His simple conclusion? He said, the virus came into that marketplace before it came out of that marketplace. The paper was circulated throughout January and published in The Lancet on February 15th. Silently, without fanfare, a headline appeared in the Global Times on the 22nd of February. The Global Times is a daily Chinese newspaper controlled by the Central Committee of the Communist Party of China. It is a nationalistic mouthpiece for the Chinese government. It is the official party line. The headline read, New Chinese study indicates novel coronavirus did not originate in Huanan Seafood Market in Wuhan. The article goes on to say, The study believes that patient zero transmitted the virus to workers or sellers at the Huanan Seafood Market. The crowded market facilitated the further transmission of the virus to buyers, which caused a wider spread in early December 2019. By virtue of the mere existence of the headline, we can infer that it is the subtlest of admissions by the Chinese government, with its stranglehold on the national media and message, that there is another layer to the story. Just like in those Cold War days, there is a secret somewhere, well kept, just waiting to see the light. Thanks for stopping by The Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. And that is me. A quick shout out to Tyler over at the Minds of Madness podcast for some post-production advice. Thanks for that. And Andrew in Kansas. I'm glad the Porch Pirates didn't get your coffee cup. Speaking of which... The Cold War Vault gift shop has shirts and stickers and mugs and some new items as I think of them. Find it at coldwarvault.com slash gift shop. And if you have any ideas for slogans or logos, send me an email. There's a form on the website. A new Patreon system is forthcoming as soon as I can sort out the tiers of support. At least, some of the special content will be retroactive as well. So start saving your bottle caps, or whatever you use for currency out there in the viral apocalypse. 
please like, subscribe, and review the show anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Until next time, trust nothing, suspect everyone, and wash your hands.